Last week, we kicked off our study of the book of 1 Thessalonians, and these are letters. The technical term is epistles that were written about 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus by the Apostle Paul to the church he had founded just six months earlier in the Greek coastal city of Thessalonica. It's still there today. It's the city of Thessaloniki today. We learned that the church was established with a few Jewish people, many Greek Gentiles, Gentiles being non-Jews, and several women who were notable because they had wealth and high standing in society in the city of Thessalonica. After just three weeks, trouble broke out in the city and the new believers who were part of this new church had to get Paul out of the city so that he wouldn't be killed by those who were causing this trouble. About five and a half months after Paul has to flee the city, Timothy and Silas go back to visit this young church and despite only having received three weeks worth of teaching from Paul, The church had grown and it was thriving because God was just doing something special at this place in this time. Timothy and Silas bring a report back to Paul of what they've seen and experienced in Thessalonica. Paul is now staying in the city of Corinth, but they also let Paul know while everything's going well, there's also some issues that need to be addressed. And so Paul writes these letters, these epistles of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians to clear up some misunderstandings and some misinterpretations of things that he had taught them while he was there. But we're also going to see he writes to address some slanderous accusations that have been made against him in his absence. People have been telling the new young believers there, oh, that Paul guy, yeah, he wasn't really legit. I mean, he just came and told you what you wanted to hear. He just gave you a a good pitch and roped you in. He was really after your money. That's one of the things they're saying. He wasn't really telling you the truth. He was just trying to take advantage of you. He was a huckster, a swindler, a scam artist. And so Paul is going to address some of those accusations in this letter. In chapter one, which we studied last week, Paul shared with the Thessalonians his joy at hearing the report that their faith was genuine. After five and a half months, they hadn't slipped away and just faded away from church and returned back to their normal lives. He knew that they had really experienced a life change. They had become real believers and followers of Jesus because they displayed the three characteristics of genuine conversion. Firstly, the work of faith. They had turned from their idols and had turned to the Lord. Secondly, the labor of love. They were serving God with their whole lives. And then lastly, the hope of expectation. They were beginning to look ahead to heaven and prioritize the way they live in light of the fact they were going to spend forever in heaven with Jesus. And they were looking forward to seeing him. If you missed that study, let me encourage you to check it out online, watch and listen to it and get caught up. Well, back in chapter one as well in verse five, Paul reminded the Thessalonians how he and Silas had behaved when they were with them, founding this new church. He had said, you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. So he's saying, you know, you remember how we were when we were with you. And for the first 12 verses here in chapter two, Paul is going to elaborate on just that, the way he and Silas conducted themselves when they were in Thessalonica. Paul is doing this as part of his defense against these false accusations that have been made against him. So he starts by saying, think back to me, 
Thessalonians to how we actually were when we were with you. So let's jump in now. Chapter 2, verse 1, it says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. You might recall from last week that just a few weeks before Paul and Silas got to Thessalonica, possibly as little as only a few days before, they had been at the center of some trouble in the city of Philippi. Like possibly the same group of people had stirred up trouble against them, and the result had been that Silas and Paul had received a Roman beating. This was a beating with clubs, and they were good at it, and they knew how to beat you right up to the point of death and then stop. But we're talking about broken bones, we're talking about deep cuts to the level of exposing muscle, and we're talking about trauma of a severity that would have left them permanently disfigured. And so Paul reminds the Thessalonians and says, hey, when we showed up, you saw what had happened to us at Philippi. You saw the scars and the scabs and the blood. And so you know that we were bringing you the message of Jesus, even though it meant risking that that might happen to us again. And that was a big deal because if it did happen to them again, it, it certainly would have killed them to receive a second beating so soon after the first. And so Paul is saying, I don't know if you know how scam artists and swindlers work, but usually for them, getting beaten to within an inch of your life isn't part of the plan, and they certainly don't go looking for it again. Verse 3, he says, for our exhortation, our encouragement to you did not come from error and uncleanness nor was it in deceit. He says, contrary to what the slanderers are saying, we didn't lie to you or deceive you. Verse four, but as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak. However, your Bible says it, underline this, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. And, and so this is huge, especially as it relates to the church in our day. Paul says, hey, listen, we didn't show up and preach to you a message with the goal of trying to please you, of trying to get you to like us. We didn't say, how can we change our message? How can we do some market research to sell these guys our message in a way that will be appealing to them? He said, we didn't tone down the truth because we were worried about being offensive to you. We, we preached with one goal, to deliver the truth, to speak the truth of God the way God would want us to speak it. They didn't concern themselves with whether or not it would be culturally acceptable or popular or in touch with the trends of the place and the time. They just preached the truth of God, plain and simple. And so Paul's building his case here. He's saying, uh, we, we got beaten to within an inch of our lives in Philippi, and then we came and preached that same message and risked that happening again. If we were just trying to make money, there's way easier ways to do that. And then he says, you know, if you think about the message we preached to you, we didn't preach to you some sort of airy, fairy, like give your life to Jesus and he'll make you rich and happy and your spouse will suddenly be better looking and you'll get a promotion and then in heaven it'll be even better. He says, it's not what we told you. We told you the truth, the truth of the gospel. And if you're able to change the message of the gospel so that it sounds acceptable to the culture, maybe even to our culture, so that it gets a wider audience, a better response, so that it's more palatable, you might get more of a response. You might get more results. But if it's not the truth, then it has no power 
There's no power in the message. It has no power to save from death. It has no power to save from sin. There's no power in that message to transform a life. It has no power to bring peace and joy and love where there is none. And Paul and Silas understood that. That's why they didn't change the message. They just preached the truth because only the truth has the power to save. The message that you're dying of cancer will not be as popular as the message that you're healthy and gonna live a long life. But if it's the truth, then you're not helping anybody by lying to them about their condition, especially if you can do something about the problem. Could you imagine a doctor saying, yeah, this guy's got cancer, but I'm not gonna tell him. It's treatable, but I mean, it's still bad news, right? Nobody likes bad news, and I'm, I'm just not that kind of guy. I'm a positive physician, you know? I'm a positive declaration guy, so I'm just gonna declare health to this guy, and he'll love that message. I'll get a good review on Google as a physician and, and everyone will be happy. It'd be a terrible doctor, he'd be awful. It, it wouldn't be loving of him to do that. We've talked about this before, but it's a huge idea. Real love does not do what the other person wants you to do. That's not what real love is. Real love does what is best for the other person no matter what the cost is. Real love does what is best for the other person, even if it causes the person to hate you. If you're a parent, you understand this. There are things that your kids really wanna do and have really wanted to do, but you were like, heck no, because you knew it was bad for them. Why did you do that? Because you love them and you understand what makes you a loving parent is not that you let them do what they wanna do. It's not that you support every decision they make. It's that you do whatever is best for them whether it makes you like them or not. And we all know train wrecks of parents who as their kids get older decide, no, the most important thing is my kid liking me rather than actually doing what's best for the kid. Those situations end up being disasters because real love does what is best for the other person no matter what the cost. Real love tells the truth and that's what the gospel is. It's the truth. So Paul and Silas stood up and they plainly preached, hey, we've all sinned and our sin has separated us from God. And I don't know if you know this, but, but as a starting point for pitching a belief system, a worldview, a religion, that's offensive to a lot of people, especially in our culture where people are more and more used to being told that they're the greatest thing since sliced bread, that you're practically a god, that you can create your own reality by simply willing it and focusing your mind. The message of Jesus and Christianity starts with you're broken, I'm broken, we're broken, and we've broken the whole world. That's our pitch. And it's offensive to many people from the get-go. And then the gospel goes on to say, not only that, but there's nothing you can do to fix it. You don't actually have the power to do that. You can't be good enough. You can't be strong enough. You can't be smart enough. You can't do enough good things. Only Jesus can fix the problem of your sin and mine. And he did, and that's the good news when he died on the cross. And if you'll put your faith in him, if you'll put your life in his hands, if you'll give your whole life to him, then you'll be saved. He died in your place and you can have a relationship with him that will be better than anything you've ever experienced in life. You'll have access to real love, real peace, real joy, real understanding, real life, and ultimately eternal life. And then just when you think, the Christian message is like, oh, of course I'm gonna do that. The ending note is, but it might cost you your earthly life. Well, how is this teaching you're doing being received in the other towns in Macedonia, in the area? 
oh, some people are being killed for this. So I, I should be upfront about that. They'd say, if you choose to accept this teaching, you might be killed for it. Who's in? Who's in? Show of hands. That's the message that they preached. And Paul says, guys, let me take you back to this. Remember what we looked like when we showed up. Remember the message we preached to you. It was just the truth. It was just the straight up truth. There was nothing in our presentation that would have looked appealing to you and made you go, you know, this sounds like a sweet deal. I'm gonna get in on this. He says the only way that you would have responded to it is because you realize this is the truth. And God was moving. So write this down on your outlines. Love speaks the truth because only the truth can set us free. Love speaks the truth because only the truth can set us free. One of the great challenges to truth in our day, one of the primary barriers to truth in our society is that we no longer hold the question, is it true, in the highest regard. Instead, we've reached a place in our culture where we've placed other questions ahead of the question of truth. We now ask questions like, well, is it offensive? Or, well, does this make me feel targeted? Does this hurt my feelings? Does this align with my values and my worldview? And in general, we're building a culture where those questions are now considered to be more important than the question, is it true? There are offensive truths all over the place. And so you don't have to go very far before you realize something being offensive has nothing to do with whether or not it's true. But we're creating this environment as a culture where we're elevating the importance of the question, is this offensive, over the importance of the question, is this true? So that's why I encourage everyone I can, I encourage my kids, be concerned with the truth. Be concerned with the truth ahead of everything else. Because whether something is offensive, whether it sounds appealing or not, has nothing to do with whether or not it's true. So Paul says, guys, let's recap our visit. We showed up looking like death. We preached a message that was pretty offensive to many, but it was the plain and simple truth. And then he goes on in verse five and he says, for neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know. We didn't just show up and tell you what you wanted to hear. Nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. He says, we weren't greedy or just looking to enrich ourselves. Remember, we didn't take anything from you, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. Verse six, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. He says, you know, we didn't show up and tell all you guys, listen, we're kind of a big deal. We're kind of like super apostles. So if you could just help us with our marketing, just take some selfies, hashtag Paul and Silas, post it, invite all your friends to come out to the revival meeting. It's going to be great. They, they didn't do that. They didn't seek a bigger reputation. They didn't seek any type of glory. They didn't ask anything from the Thessalonians, even as far as hospitality goes. And this is important because he says, as apostles of Christ, they had every right to ask for hospitality. They had every right to say, hey, we need somewhere to stay. We need food to eat while we're here in town doing God's work. He says, we had every right to do that, but we didn't do it. Then he goes on and he says, but we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you would become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. 
He says, we love you and, and we prove that we love you by the way we were when we were with you. We didn't just give you a message. We gave you our lives while we were with you. We gave you every bit of love and attention and effort that we could. So instead of asking for financial support from the Thessalonians, what Paul and Silas did is they, they'd minister all day and then if they needed extra cash, they would work on the side at night, sleeping probably like five hours a night, four hours a night, so that the Thessalonians wouldn't have to give them a dime. And if you're getting excited about that, hang on a second, we're gonna talk about it in just a minute. Verse 10, he says, you are witnesses and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. So they lived in such a way among the Thessalonians that people couldn't dismiss their message based on their actions. They couldn't say, well, what they're saying might be true, but those guys are kind of jerks, so I'm not gonna hear it. Paul says, there's nothing you can point to about the way we acted to dismiss our message. Now we know that any message, any teaching, any theory, any idea should actually be evaluated on its own merits. We know that. In other words, we don't evaluate the theory of gravity by saying, was Sir Isaac Newton a nice man though? Was he an honorable man? Was he a good guy? That's not what we do to evaluate the theory of gravity. We evaluate the theory on its own merits. Newton's personal character has nothing to do with the truth or validity of the theory of gravity. However, when we're claiming to belong to Jesus, the God who is love, we sure can make it harder for people to evaluate the message if we're not doing a great job of embodying the love of God. And we don't want our lives to be obstacles in any way to people coming to Jesus. Paul and Silas lived in such a way so that they made it easier for people to see Jesus and find Jesus rather than difficult. We shouldn't live our lives in a way where people say, you know, I'm interested in Jesus. I just have to get past that Jeff guy. Gosh, he's such a jerk. I think there's something to the Jesus thing though, but I just, I, just, I just gotta let that other stuff go. We don't wanna live that way, so write this down. Our goal is to live lives that make the gospel easier to believe, not more difficult. If someone really wants the truth, they'll, they'll find it and they'll seek it out, but we sure can make it more difficult when we say, hey, Jesus will give you real joy, but we're like the most miserable person that they know. Or, or Jesus loves you, he's, he's just all about love, and we're like the most judgmental person in the world. We sure can make it more difficult. Verse 11, he says, as you know how we exhorted, that means encouraged, and comforted, and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now dads, tune in, pay attention because I could do a whole message on this, and I might in a future series, but, but I want you to notice that Paul tells us three things, and this is heavy if you're a dad. He tells us three things that a godly father does to help his children grow up walking with God. He says that a godly father first exhorts, that means encourages, a godly father comforts, and a godly father charges his children. He says this is what children need from a father. They need encouragement, they need comfort and they need to be challenged. That would be calling them to live and do things the right way. That would involve being an example, a model, and it also involves disciplining them when need be and pointing out things that need to be changed. And, and many of us, especially including me, it, it comes very naturally and, and we're doing a good job as dads with challenging our kids, with disciplining them, with, with 
seeing and pointing out things that need to be corrected. But dads, how are we doing at encouraging and comforting our kids? How are we doing at encouraging and comforting our kids? And I'm just gonna say, if God's speaking to your heart about that right now as a dad, don't, don't miss this. Don't just space it out. Write a note on your outline somewhere. Underline it in your Bible. Do something to bring yourself back to this and spend some time meditating on this. Tonight, do it tomorrow as you spend time with the Lord and you open up the word as you drive to work. Just see what God might wanna say to you in that and, and if there's something in you that God wants to change. I know I'm gonna be praying toward that as well. The discipline part is usually pretty easy. It's not that hard to be critical. It's much more difficult to be encouraging and comforting as a dad. That comes a lot less naturally. As we mentioned earlier, Paul points out that they had rights as apostles of Christ that they did not exercise. They had every right to ask for and expect hospitality, that their housing and their food would be provided for. They had every right to ask for their financial needs to be provided for by the people they were ministering to. But they didn't exercise any of these rights as apostles of Christ, so why? I'm gonna suggest to you because the Holy Spirit told them not to in that place and in that time. Now why would the Holy Spirit do that? I think it's because the Holy Spirit knows that when you're working with people who are new to the faith, the goal for them is building a relationship with Jesus, not giving them a list of things they need to do. And then what happens is the same thing that's hopefully happened in each of us, is that that new believer begins to build a relationship with Jesus, and out of that relationship, their life begins to just naturally change. And all these different areas of life, instead of being under their control, they now bring them under the authority of Jesus. And they now say, I want Jesus to be in charge of this part of my life. But it's not like you get saved and that just happens overnight. Many of us, I won't ask for a show of hands, there's still areas of our life where God is working with us and saying, I want you to bring that part of your life under my control. And we're like, mm, I'm not there yet. It's only been 37 years. Give me a little bit more time, Jesus. Well, why the rush, you know? And there's a joke among pastors where they always say the last part of a person to get saved is always their wallet. That's a well-known saying in church. And the idea is that what happens is as God begins to work in our lives, we naturally bring the areas of our lives under his authority. But one of the toughest ones is just money. It's just tough, especially like if you haven't grown up in the church and you suddenly get into church and they're like, yeah, so do you guys like give money or stuff? And you're like, oh yeah, we give like 10% of our income to the Lord. They're like, like what? What? That's absolutely crazy. And if you've never done that, that's, that's like a, a quantum, quantum leap. And I'm so thankful. I mean, I've, I've been doing that since I was a kid. So when I started, it was a whole 10 cents that I was giving to the Lord, you know? And then it just gradually went up as my income went up as an adult. But I, I never had to make the giant jump from doing nothing to like giving a car payment to the church when I became a believer in adulthood. I, I never had to do that. So it's very, very difficult for many people. And so what the Holy Spirit says is, he says, you know what? The, this is not gonna work. You go into a new place with new believers. You can't just immediately be like, hey, you need to do this, 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 and this. The priority is you need to know Jesus. And then over time, over even years, God begins to work and bring every area under the control of Jesus. And you've gotta give that time. And if you begin to say, what you need to focus on is all these areas, instead of focusing on Jesus, then you've just got religion. You've just got a whole list of rules and what you're telling them is knowing God means following all these rules. 
That's not what a relationship with God is. It's not what a relationship with God is. And as you study Paul's patterns of travel and church planting, you're going to find that the Holy Spirit seems to tell him this nearly everywhere that he starts a church. He starts a church, and though he has all these rights, he doesn't exercise them, doesn't talk about money, doesn't ask for money. He, he gives space and time, and he lets the Holy Spirit move in people's hearts. And then as they mature, they begin to naturally say like, hey, I, I, I want to be a part of supporting what you're doing, Paul. I want to be a part of supporting our church. I, I want to be on board with that. And so how would Paul know when was the right time to begin bringing up the issue? Well, he'd, he'd pray about it. He'd ask the Lord and the Holy Spirit would lead them. So in Thessalonica, Paul and Silas didn't know that they'd have to run for their lives after three weeks. But the Holy Spirit knew. He knew. And so he said, listen, you're only going to be here three weeks. There's other stuff I need you to talk about during these three weeks. We'll get to the money thing later. So they had the right to ask for all the support, but, but they didn't. And, and that really speaks to me because... I don't know about you, some of you are, are godly like me in this area where you love things to be black and white and super categorized. Some of you share that level of righteousness. Some of you are more spontaneous and satanic, but um, <laughs> I'm messing with you. I'm a hyper OCD person. I love things to be organized. You know, this, I remember when we lived in Florida and we would like take the kids to SeaWorld and Charlene and I would have like, like negotiations before we went. Because when I say I was OCD, I was like, listen, listen, we've been before and we failed to get to all the rides we want to get to. We got to spreadsheet this thing out. Okay, we got to put all the rides on a spreadsheet. We got to put target times. We got to put estimates in there. And then it, it's simple and relaxed because all we got to do is flow through the spreadsheet. And she's looking at me like, Simple and relaxed, we're really gonna be that family with like a three ring binder with like a spreadsheet of our day plan in there? It's like, we're not gonna do that. Let's, let's just go and do whatever is gonna have fun. And I'm like, like, are you saved? I don't understand. What's this like going on? And so we met in the middle and I'm way more relaxed now and she's more of a planner now. So everything works out. But I love things to be black and white and, and, and easily categorized. And so when it comes to my faith and when it comes to living for Jesus, the part of me that is my natural self, the part of me the Bible calls my flesh, the part that is not saved yet. My spirit is saved. I have a new spirit from God, but I'm still in this broken, fallen, sinful body. And this sinful body wants to do its own thing. And what it really wants to do is live by a set of rules that simplify my decisions easily. And I've got good intentions. I, I want to live for Jesus, but what I can easily do is I can disconnect from my relationship with Jesus and replace that relationship with a set of rules and flow charts that govern how I live. And the problem is what Jesus said about living that way. He used the analogy of our lives producing good things, good works, being like a, a healthy tree that produces fruit. And Jesus said this, it's on your outlines. This is, this is one of the most key parts of scripture about the Christian life in the whole Bible. Jesus said, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For, and then just underline this, without me you can do nothing. Without me you can do nothing. So Jesus says, Jeff, even if you know the Bible inside and out, if you know every command, you know every instruction, every verse, and you can apply it to your life, even then, if you stop living in relationship with me, you'll accomplish nothing. Nothing. 
And I was thinking about this from a, from a different angle than I normally do while studying this week. I was thinking about how the Apostle John tells us twice in the epistle of 1 John that God is love. And the idea is, is not that love is an external force or an external thing. The idea is not that God has a lot of love. The idea is that he is it. He is love. He is the source of love. He's the origin of love. He is the definition of what love is. He's the one who defines love by his very nature. God is love. And so even when I know the rules and commands and the scriptures and all that good stuff, if I'm not abiding in Jesus, if I'm not staying closely connected to him, in relationship with him in my daily life, then this is such a big deal because it means I become disconnected from the only source of real love. I become disconnected from the only source of real love. And the idea is that if, if I'm not connected to the source of real love, then how can real love ever flow out of my life? It can't because I have, I have no supply if I become disconnected from the source. And then what happens? Well, Paul tells us exactly what happens when you try to live without being connected to the source of real love. In 1 Corinthians 13, it's on your outlines, Paul puts it like this. He says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing, nothing. Paul and Silas had rights as apostles of Christ, and the Bible tells us they actually had, they actually had the right. They would not have been wrong to ask for financial support and hospitality and all these things. But, but there were extenuating circumstances as we said, God knew they'd have to flee Thessalonica after less than a month. God knew that there would be false accusations made in their absence. God knew that this church full of new young believers would be easily discouraged if there was anything in the way Paul and Silas had conducted themselves that would open them up to accusations of only being in it for the money. Holy Spirit knows all of that. He knows all of that's coming. And so he says, guys, don't ask for anything this time. Nothing. And if Paul and Silas were doing what I'm often drawn to, if they were just going by the book, living by a flow chart, they would have come in and said, well, here we are, new city, and as the word says, we have rights as apostles, so we'll find some people, we'll preach the gospel, those who receive it, we'll let them know, hey, we need you to put us up somewhere, we need you to feed us. And they would have just said, that's how the flow chart goes, if they were thinking the way that I often like to. And if they had done that, they would have missed the Holy Spirit saying, not this time, guys. Not this time. Not here. Not now. And that would have opened them up to all sorts of accusations after they had had to flee. They would have discouraged this young church severely. But they were open to hear from the Holy Spirit because they were walking in relationship with Jesus. They were abiding in him. They were praying and consulting God throughout their day. And here's what you and I desperately need to understand when it comes to extenuating circumstances. I don't say this a lot, but I felt like, like God actually told me this this week. We need to understand that, that people are extenuating circumstances. People are extenuating circumstances. And what I mean by that is just as there were dynamics in play in Thessalonica that Paul and Silas knew nothing about, 
there are almost always dynamics in play in the lives of people that we know nothing about. Almost always. But do you know who knows about all of those dynamics? God. Holy Spirit knows every person you talk to, every person you interact with, the Holy Spirit knows everything going on. And John the Apostle told us that God is what? God is love. God is love. So you see, love knows what's really going on. So if we live our lives connected to the source of love, then we're able to actually interact with people in love and we're actually able to love them well because the love that we're extending to them is coming from the God who knows everything that's really going on in them, really going on. And we're able to go to God and say, God, I wanna love this person well, but I don't even know how to do that. I don't even know how to love them well, but you know. You know everything going on inside of them and everything they're carrying, everything they're going through. So God, help me. And he will. And because Paul and Silas were connected to the Lord, abiding in Jesus, they were able to love the Thessalonians well by serving them and not taking a dime from them. That's the way they needed to be loved in that moment. That's the way that would bless them in the future. People are extenuating circumstances. People do not behave or think in accordance with flow charts. There are always extenuating circumstances. There are always dynamics in play. This is why we can talk to our children or spouses. I know we've all had these type of things happen. You talk to your child, you talk to your spouse, you lay things out using logic. You're actually right based on the facts. You win the argument or the discussion, but you walk away and you know and you can feel that nothing was actually accomplished and things might somehow actually be worse. We've all had that happen. We walk away and we say, yeah, yeah, I was right. I laid it out right. I did things the right way based on the flow chart, based on the facts, but, but that there's a disconnect. We're not actually making progress. Love didn't actually happen in this interaction. We've all had that happen all the time. Why does that happen? Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. If I'm not connected to Jesus, if I'm not abiding in him, then I'm not connected to the source of real love, the love that knows what's really going on and what's really needed in that situation or conversation. Paul and Silas abided in that love while they were in Thessalonica and love told them to go above and beyond in that situation. So write this down. If we're not connected to the God who is the source of real love, then we can't extend real love to anyone else. If we're not connected to the God who is the source of real love, then we can't extend real love to anyone else. So what does this look like practically for you and I. I'm going to be as practical as I can. It's, it's some time with the Lord every day. It, it's getting in his word so that you can learn what his voice, the voice of the Holy Spirit, sounds like. It doesn't get talked about a lot, but that, that's one of the most important benefits of, of being in the Bible every day is that is the voice of God in the Bible. 
and you're learning what the voice of God sounds like so that when you have voices going on in your head, you know which one belongs to the Lord because you know what his voice sounds like. And then it's going back to him throughout the day. When you're wanting to genuinely connect with your kid, that they're in your house after school, not, not just going in, and I know many of us are in this place, if you've got young teenagers, you're in that place where you want to connect and you're like, how was school, buddy? And they're like, good. You're like, I tried, I tried, I'm a good parent. Before that, it's a matter of going, okay, God, please help me to love them well. Show me what's really going on in their soul. Help me to ask the right question. Help me to say the right thing. Help me to encourage. Help me to comfort. Help me to charge them. Help me to, to do well. And then going into that moment, just asking God for help. You'll be amazed. You'll be amazed what something that simple and short will do because what you're saying is you're saying, God, I need your help in this situation. And when we ask, God delivers because that's something God wants to see. He wants to see us love our kids well, so he's on board with that. When there's an issue in your marriage, when there's a difficult subject to be discussed, when, when a disagreement uh, blows up, it's taking that moment, even in the midst of it, in your own mind to say, say, God, please help me. I don't want to be ruled by my emotions right now. Help me understand what's really going on, what's behind all of this. Help me to see how to love them well in this situation. You'll be amazed amazed the difference it will make. When you go into conversations and meetings and interactions, just saying, God, help me to see who you want me to minister to today. Who do you want me to encourage? Who do you, who do you want me to ask that question to today? You'll be amazed how many times I've, I've prayed that and then gone into a situation and someone just looks, looks out of it, just to me, and nobody else noticed. They just look a little out of it, and I'll say, hey, are you, are you doing okay? You just look like something's going on, and boom, there's this huge incident going on in their life and they're just waiting for somebody to ask and it's not that I have insight or anything profound it's just that I chose in that moment to be connected to the God who knew what was going on the God who's real love and so that love flowed through me not because I'm special but because I was connected to the source of real love and then get into the habit of praying after as well after every conversation every meeting you have with someone just pray for them real quick as you're leaving God just bless them today You'll be amazed how that will connect you to God. And as you do stuff like this, you're inviting God into your mental processing. You're inviting him into your thought process. And I know, I've told you before, I know that like my wife is so good at this. I know that she's got way more of her God in, God in her mental processing because when we drive and we're behind somebody slow, I'm always the person who is like, what is wrong with this person? They just need to get off the road. They're, they're not fit to be driving. And my wife is like always the person that's like, Jeff, you don't know. Maybe it's some terrified old person who's just scared of the whole world and, and it's a really rough time right now. And you're riding their tail honking at them. I'm like, I'm like babe, that's, that's not who it is. Like, just stop. Stop being ridiculous. And then, you know, I swear I know what happens. At that exact moment, God like shifts the space-time continuum, removes the person who was in that car out of the car, puts in a near-blind, frail, terrified-looking old lady just to make a point, and then she'll like pull over into a parking spot so that we can drive past them, and the whole car and all my children can see them, and all look at me, and I can just be like, yes, I'm a terrible human being. I'm a terrible human being. And so now I'm like, okay, Lord, I'm going to try and invite you into my thought process. Lord, help me to understand 
why this person is driving like such an idiot. What's going on, Jesus? So progress, progress, incremental progress, that's the idea. But we can't love people well without being connected to the source of love. And so now I have to shift gears. I have to go back and address this, this money financial issue because some of you, not those of you who are here, you know, but those who are online who are gonna listen to this message, some of them might say, aha, you, you see, Jeff, this is how it's supposed to be. There shouldn't be any offering collection. There shouldn't be talk of tithing in the church. There shouldn't be any talk of money at all. You should be like Paul and Silas were in Thessalonica, Jeff, not asking for anything. Simply do the full-time work of the ministry and then ignore your wife and children and go do another eight hours in some other job. And then you'll bless us that way. It would be great. Now, you might recall that Paul came to Thessalonica from Philippi, where he got that Roman beating. And after Thessalonica, he went through Berea before ending up in the city of Corinth where he stayed for about 18 months. And that's where he was when he wrote these letters of First and Second Thessalonians. He was in the city of Corinth. While he's there, Paul will also write a letter back to the church in Philippi. It's the New Testament epistle in your Bibles called Philippians. And in his letter to the Philippians, Paul writes this. It's on your outline. He says, now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, When I departed from Macedonia, so when I left you in Philippi, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, so no church supported me financially, but only you, only you guys. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. So here's the idea. While Paul was in Philippi, the believers there matured, grew in the faith, and became glad to support Paul's practical financial needs. They wanted Paul praying and studying and teaching God's word. That's where they wanted his attention to be. So they were happy to provide financially and in terms of hospitality for his needs. Not only that, but when they established another pastor there, they were happy to support them. And they continued supporting Paul in his missionary journey to Thessalonica. So when they hear that Paul's in Thessalonica and he's out of cash, they send him money. And he says they did that more than once, even though he's only there for three weeks. They loved Paul and they believed in his mission. So understand this, understand this. One of the reasons that Paul does not have to receive or request financial support in Thessalonica is because he's already being supported by the church in Philippi. They're helping him out. And if there was a a gap, a, a lapse of time between them sending the financial support and him receiving it, he would just do an odd job one evening. That's the idea here. Well, after about 18 months in Corinth, Paul will leave that city, and as was his custom, he'll write letters back to the church in Corinth. And it's interesting what Paul has to say to them as it relates to finances, especially when you realize he wasn't in Corinth for just three weeks. He was there for a year and a half. Here's what he says, also on your outlines. He says, "Um, do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple? And those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Even so, that means in the same way or likewise, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. So here's what Paul is saying. He says, guys, you all know, you open the Old Testament scriptures when they had the temple in Jerusalem. All the priests who worked in the temple made their living from the temple. People brought literal sacrifices in of animal. They were allowed parts of that animal to feed their family and they they made their living they got a salary from doing their work in the temple 
And Paul says very simply, it's the same way in the church, in the New Testament. This is God's plan for funding the church, that the people of the church would support the church so that the church can exist. It's very simple. And as you read through Paul's letters to the Corinthians, it becomes clear that they never really made it a priority to do that, to support Paul or their local pastors. And this was concerning to Paul, not because he's trying to get rich. You won't find any indication Paul was ever rich in the scriptures. But it was concerning to him because how we spend our money reveals a lot about our priorities. It reveals a lot about what's most important to us. Very simply, if we don't have enough money to do two things, we can only do one thing, which is the thing that's going to get done. Whichever thing is more important to us, right? Whichever thing is the higher priority. Jeans or shoes, this is a tough call. Whichever one is the highest priority, pay the mortgage or go on vacation. Whichever one is the highest priority. For the Corinthian church, it seems that God never really became their highest priority. And that's revealed by the fact that they never really grew up in their faith to the point where they started putting God first in the area of their finances. They never really reached that point. And later on, Paul would write a second letter to the church in Corinth. And he's even more ticked off in the second letter. So check it out. It's also in your outlines. He says to them, he's getting real blunt now. He says, guys, something's got to change. I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. So what churches were in Macedonia? Berea, Philippi, and Thessalonica. So while Paul's in Corinth for 18 months, the believers never really get on board with putting God first in their finances. And Paul ends up being provided for while he's in Corinth, ministering to the Corinthians. He's provided for by the Macedonian churches, including the church in Thessalonica. And Paul tells the Corinthians, he's like, this is to your shame because it's like I'm robbing other churches. I'm ministering to you on other people's dime. You should be covering this. And so this means that in the months and years after Paul left Thessalonica, the believers in Thessalonica grew in their faith. And as they did, all these different areas of their lives start coming under the rule and reign and authority of Jesus, and they start doing things his way, including the area of finances. And they don't just support their local pastors there, but they continue to support the missionary work of Paul because they love Paul. He's the guy who brought them the gospel. And what's also powerful about this is when you study church history, you find at this time in the Roman Empire, the Macedonian churches are under the worst persecution that's going on in the whole Roman Empire. If you take a look at what's going on in Corinth, they're not really being persecuted. And as you read Paul's letters to the Corinthians, it's evident that they were busy struggling with stuff like greed and promiscuity and selfishness and not really living radically for Jesus at all. But that's because what happens is when you're persecuted for your faith, when life gets difficult, when you could lose your life at any minute, nothing will make you realize how worthless earthly things are like living in a state where you could lose them all tomorrow. And we see this all the time even in our culture. Someone gets a a fatal diagnosis of a disease. One of the things that immediately happens, you got six months to live. Man, does stuff suddenly become not worth a whole lot when you realize I'm gonna be leaving this world very soon. And so the persecution made these Macedonian churches live radically for Jesus, live generously for Jesus as well. Paul goes on, verse 13, and he says, 
For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, and then underline this, which also effectively works in you who believe. So here's the idea. When we're not yet believers or followers of Jesus, we hear the word of God, we hear the gospel, and Paul says, this, this is what really happens. Something in you says, hey, there, there's something going on here. There's something to this. Even though we might not really understand it, even though we might still have a billion questions, even though we might think some of this just sounds like total nonsense, we hear it and we just know, man, there's something to this. There's something to this. And at that moment, we have a choice. Paul says we either dismiss that feeling by saying, oh, it's just the word of men. In other words, oh, that's a nice story Jeff told. That was, that was a cool message that Paul delivered there. We either dismiss it and say, oh, that, that was just an idea from men, or we press into it and we say, listen, there's more going on here than a nice idea. I gotta know more. I gotta check this out further. This might be God speaking to me. And Paul says, we thank God because when you guys heard the gospel message, when you heard the word of God, you said, I gotta know more. I gotta check this out further. You didn't just stop at hearing it mentally. You took it down into your soul, into your hearts. And then he says, when you become a believer, things go to a whole nother level with God's word. It does something profound in you when you read it or hear it. And the actual word Paul uses there when he says the word of God effectively works in believers is the Greek word energeo, energeo, from which we get our word energy. It means to energize. So if you're a believer, that's what being in and around the Bible, the word of God does for you. It energizes you, even when you don't fully understand it even when you still have a billion questions. When you spend time where the word of God is being taught and read and studied, it just does something inside of you. It changes you, it ministers to you. And I don't know everything you're going through in life right now. I don't know all the intimate details of every life in this room, but, but God does. And even in this message, as we study the scriptures together, if you'll let him, Holy Spirit will speak to you where you're at. He will minister you tonight out of 1 Thessalonians 2. Even though if you just read the words, you might be like, this has nothing to do with my life. God will do something. He'll do something. Because the Bible's supernatural. It's alive and it'll do something in you every time you open its pages. For the believer, it's energizing. For the non-believer who says it's just the words of men, it does, it does absolutely nothing. Because it's never been received. They felt the prompting and instead of following it, they said, eh, this is the words of men, and they just dismissed it. But for the believer, I can't tell you how many times I've been teaching a chapter or a section of scripture, and I've been thinking, even as I'm teaching, oh man, no one's getting anything out of this. We're preaching on frickin' circumcision tonight. <laughs> Apply that to your life, church, be blessed, off you go. Stand up here sometimes and I've taught on things where I've thought people are going to think I'm out of my mind. They're going to think Jeff, Jeff has lost it. But he's lost it with gusto. I mean, he's really going for it. It's entertaining at least. So. Or, or, or I've, I've thought, man, uh, this is so tough to teach. Let's just, let's just get it over with. Let's just get it over with. Let me just teach it because God told me to do it. And let's, let's just get it done. And I can't tell you how many times afterwards someone will come up to me on one of those weeks after the service with tears in their eyes saying, man, God really spoke to me. Or I'll get an email later from someone that week who's listened to the message online thousands of miles away and wants me to know God changed their life through that message. And I want to sound like I'm full of faith, but I'm actually thinking, seriously? Like for real? 
Like, you, you got that from that? That's exactly what I was going for. Yeah, yeah. And, then, and it happens because it's not me. It's the Word of God doing what the Word of God does. And he just does something supernatural wherever people are willing to receive his Word. So would you write this down on your outlines? God's Word supernaturally energizes believers. It supernaturally energizes believers. And then in verse 14, Paul says, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. And they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Let me give you a translation. Paul's saying, he says, I'm proud of you Thessalonians because you're following Jesus just like the other believers back in Israel, back in Jerusalem. And he says, I know this because I look at you and you're actually suffering the same kind of persecutions that they're suffering. He says, like them, you're dealing with a group of Jewish men who don't believe Jesus was the Messiah and so they think what you're teaching is heresy and blasphemy and they're determined to kill you, to see you thrown in jail, to see Christianity stop and come to an end. He says, I've been troubled by these guys. They're troubling you. They're troubling the believers in Israel. He says, I just want you guys to know this has been going on a while. They've been killing God's messengers all the way back to the prophets. And then for you Bible students, Paul says something subtle but, but, but really important. He says that these men are contrary to who? To all men, all men. In other words, they're working against all men by trying to stop the gospel. What's the implication there? You say, where are you going with this, Jeff? Just to make this simple point, Paul's implying that God wants all men to be saved. He wants all men to be saved because he says they're contrary to all men. They're working against the good of all men. When Paul says this confusing phrase, wrath has come upon them to the uttermost, he's speaking in what we'd call the future now tense. The idea is he's speaking about something that's gonna happen in the future but it's gonna happen with such certainty that he's speaking about it as though it's already happened. It's already happened. It's the future now tense. And in this instance, what he's saying is, he's saying, listen, there's some serious wrath coming from God down the line for these guys who don't just reject Jesus, but they make it their life's mission to stop anybody else from even hearing about him. They don't just want to reject Jesus. They want to stop other people from even hearing about Jesus. And Paul says, from God's perspective, that's just about as wicked as it gets. You're not only rejecting the truth, but you're doing everything you can to stop other people from even hearing the truth. You're intentionally making yourself an obstacle to the truth. And Paul is saying, to put it bluntly, he's saying, listen, those guys are going to get what's coming to them. If they don't repent, they're going to have to stand before God and answer to God when he says, why did you try to hide from people what my son Jesus did for them? Why did you not want them to know? Paul says they're gonna get what's coming to them. Now just listen to how much Paul genuinely loves these guys in Thessalonica. He has genuine care and affection for them if you haven't picked that up yet. Verse 17, he says, but we brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, 
But Satan hindered us. He says, we've never stopped thinking about you. We've never stopped praying for you. We've been trying to get there to visit you guys. But Satan's doing everything he can to stop us. Now, how does Satan do that? How does Satan try to hinder us? For us, perhaps it's with sickness or maybe some overtime at work that leaves you exhausted. And then you hear that little voice saying, oh, you're too tired to pray. You're too tired to open your Bible today. You're too tired to go to church, too tired to go to men's group or a woman's group. Just leave it for next week. Or perhaps he hinders you with a, a sports game that's going on right when church is going on or when small group's going on or whenever you'd normally be in the Bible. Whatever it is, Paul recognizes that this is Satan trying to hinder us. He says, we want to come down and visit you in Thessalonica, but, but every time we do, the ships are full. When we find a ship that's going that has room, suddenly that ship has a problem and it doesn't sail. It breaks down. Stuff like this. So what do you do when that happens? Well, you do what Paul did. Firstly, you recognize that's what's happening. You recognize there's something spiritual going on. You don't go yell at the boat captains. Why don't you do a better job taking care of your boat? And then maybe we could go to Thessalonica. You recognize what's actually going on. Then you do what you can and you ask God to do what you can't. So Paul was praying, he was saying, God, give me a way to get to Thessalonica. He couldn't make himself get there, but you know what they were able to do is they were able to get Timothy and Silas there. They got out there to visit after five and a half months. And what Paul could do is he could write letters. He wrote them two letters to encourage those believers. He didn't give up, he did what he could, he asked God to do what he could not, and then he trusted God to be good. He trusted God to be good. Verse 19, almost done here. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For you are our hope, or I'm sorry, for you are our glory and joy. I love this. Paul has the right perspective. He understood that when this earthly life is over and we're standing in the presence of God, the legacy he wanted to, his earthly life to have was that he helped people know Jesus. He helped people know Jesus. And when we stand before God as believers, the Bible tells us we're gonna be judged for our works but, but for rewards. So if you're a believer, the issue isn't are you gonna get into heaven or not? That's a done deal. But our lives will be evaluated for the purpose of rewards. And the Bible says the way that's gonna happen is everything good we've done in our lives will be passed through some type of filter like unrefined gold passing through a fire. And everything we did for ourselves will burn up and disappear while everything we did for God will make it through. And we'll be rewarded for those things that make it through. And this isn't about good or bad. This is about I did this because I love Jesus or I did this for myself. And it might shock you to know that you can do all kinds of good stuff but actually be doing it for yourself. There are all kinds of people who've devoted their life to feeding the homeless or serving the poor. But they're not really doing it for God. They're doing it because it makes them feel good. It gives them a feeling of purpose and meaning in their life. And a lot of people are doing that actually instead of serving God. They're scratching that itch that says, I, I need to feel like a good person, so I'm going to do this thing. And they're actually doing it for themselves. They're not actually doing it even for the people they're serving. They're doing it for what it gives them. And the Bible says, hey, even in those moments, that stuff is not gonna matter because you're actually doing it for yourself. And now you might think, well, Jeff, this is gonna be super awkward. It's gonna be a big fire and there's not gonna be a whole lot coming out the other end. 
Are people going to be around when this happens in heaven? It's going to be really awkward. But let me encourage you with this. Every time you say no to your flesh, you say no to your own selfish desires, and instead choose to do what you know God would have you do, you're doing something for the Lord. Every time you serve your family or your spouse when your flesh doesn't want to, simply because you know that's what the Lord wants you to do, that's serving the Lord. Every time you serve your boss or your coworkers with a good attitude when your flesh doesn't really want to, just because you know God wants you to, that's serving the Lord. Every time we choose to, to value someone that we wouldn't naturally value, simply because we know God values them, that's serving the Lord. Every time we say no to ourselves and yes to God, we're doing something that will last into eternity. And the Bible says we'll be rewarded by God for it. And Paul says of the Thessalonians, he says, my joy is that you will be part of my legacy in heaven forever. You'll be there. And parents, that's how we want to view our children. Man, our children are our legacy. And we want to make sure that we're not leading them to live lives focused on things that aren't going to matter in eternity. We want to make sure that we're teaching our children how to live profitably from an eternal perspective. Just say this in closing. Reminders of, of two things. Dads, encourage, comfort, and charge your children. You're probably doing a good job charging them. But encourage them and comfort them. They need it. They need it. And for all of us, may we remember that people are extenuating circumstances and we can't love people well unless we're connected to the God who is the source of all real love. We don't know what's going on in anybody, even the people we think we know well. We don't know what's going on, but God does, and God can help us love them well. The goal isn't a to-do list in life. It's a relationship with Jesus. It's living life connected to Jesus. That's the goal. So with that, would you bow your head and close your eyes? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word and just how it guides us, how it instructs us, how it illuminates the right way to live. And Father, we all have people that you've put in our lives that, that we want to love well. And Lord, we just confess that on our own, we don't even know how to do that. We don't actually know how to love anybody well. But you do. Not just adequately, but well. You know how they need to be loved today, how they'll need to be loved tomorrow. You know the words they need to hear. You know what they need from us, God. And so we just ask that you would help us to stay connected to you, reliant on you, uh, so that we can love people well. And so that we can make it easier for them to believe in the God who is love. That they would see you in us. That we would represent you well. And then Father, I pray especially for those of us who are dads, that, that you'd help us to encourage and comfort our children, not only to charge them, but to love as, as you love us, Lord, as a perfectly good heavenly father. 